Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Well, sadly, there's uh, apparently some wounded U.S. personnel among these two attacks at the airports, at the Kabul airports, Abbeygate and the nearby Barron Hotel, both areas that were supposed to be secured by the Taliban. We will get into that in just a moment with uh, Julio Rivera. Today is National Women's Equality Day. It's the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment being ratified into law are being put into law five years ago today, or actually six years ago today, it's a fifth year anniversary, or the fifth anniversary of Colin Kaepernick first taking a knee at the NFL game, the 49ers game in San Francisco to protest racial injustice and police brutality. And it's National Dog Day. But we've got a lot coming up in the program today. To start out, on the line with us is the editorial director of Reactionary Times, contributor to Newsmax, American Thinker, and townhall.com. ReactionaryTimes.com, Julio Rivera. Oh, yeah, it's Julio is the Twitter handle. And uh, so, Julio, what's the, the latest strategy that you right-wingers are going to try to use to blame Trump's surrender around Afghanistan on uh, Joe Biden? Wow. So that's how you guys are trying to spin it, I guess. That's, so the fact of the matter is, listen, we all want to pull out of Afghanistan um, in a major way um, and, and bring the majority of the, the troops that were there at home. I think that was a, a bipartisan sentiment. Um, the problem is with the, the, the way that they went about doing it. I mean, if you know that you have these thousands of civilian um, support staff, you know, uh, translators, Americans, uh, Afghanis that were, um, you know, supporting the Afghanistan government, um, leaving them in, in the situation that they kind of have. I mean, I know that they're trying as best as they can to get as many people home. But this sloppy tactic um, that they went about, the, the way that they're doing it, I think, uh, you know, definitely putting the cart before the horse and putting a lot of people in the line of fire. I mean, there's reports on the ground now that the Taliban is going door to door looking for Americans, looking for the censors. Um, there's been reports of people being executed as a result of their failure to uh, pledge their allegiance to the Taliban. Um, you know, and, and then we can get into all... The, uh, the weapons, uh, the equipment cash, uh, some people are estimating as much as about 70 to $90 billion worth of equipment is being left behind, which is uh, immediately going to be put into use by the Taliban. There was a report from the U.N., uh, unclassified report from recently that said that al-Qaeda actually is active in about 10 to 15 provinces within Afghanistan. So you know that uh, terror globally is going to proliferate now uh, with the cover and the protection uh, and the harboring of the Taliban. Yeah, so so I get all that, and I'm horrified by all that, Julio. I, I share your horror. Um, what I don't understand is, uh, you know, H.R. McMaster was uh, Donald Trump's national security advisor. And uh, he said last week, he said, our Secretary of State signed a surrender agreement with the Taliban. This collapse goes back to the capitulation agreement of February 2020. The Taliban didn't defeat us, we defeated ourselves. Donald Trump's then defense secretary, Mark Esper, said uh, Donald, uh, President Trump undermined the agreement. I objected to it. Um, a memo based on our recommendations to the military ch chain of command said that we not reduce our forces below 4,500 unless and until conditions were met by the Taliban. Um, otherwise, we would see what is unfolding right now in many ways. But Donald Trump was in such a hurry to get out of Afghanistan 
originally and then, you know, to dump it on his successor later that he didn't ask the Taliban for anything. He drew our troops down to 2,500. He signed what his own national security uh, advisor uh, describes as a surrender agreement. He closed 10 Air Force bases and turned over all that material to the Taliban. Um, I, I share your outrage. It's, it's yeah. terrible how, how badly Donald Trump screwed this pooch. Um, you know, and, yeah, and props to Joe Biden. You know, since July 1st, he's gotten 103,000 people out of Afghanistan when Donald Trump, just like with the vaccines, you know, yeah, here's some money to develop vaccines. Oh, a plan to distribute them? No, we never even thought about that. Literally left no plan whatsoever to get out of Afghanistan and prevented the Biden administration from even having access to military briefings from the time that Trump lost the election in, in November all the way up until January 20th. I mean, I, I, I get your outrage. I don't understand why you're not no, no. directing it toward Donald Trump. First off, this, this isn't our cooch to screw, so to speak. I mean, the fact of the matter is a lot of this goes back to the Afghani government. Right now, people don't understand the dynamics of this. And I think that's that was our problem. government. Listen, that was the I government, know, by the way, that Donald it's, Trump it's cut out States of the negotiations. allies who still also maintains about a uh, true presence of about 7,000 troops. Um, you know, the Taliban has about 75,000 fighters, right? The Afghan government has about 300,000 troops, but it's not a conventional army. I mean, these armies are run by local warlords that are basically receiving uh, 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 money from the Afghani government to pay these soldiers. A lot of times, these warlords don't even pay their troops. A lot of these troops have probably been on both sides of the conflict. It's a mess, but we could have maintained the same stalemate that we've had basically in place since 2014 by continuing to provide air support and intelligence support to the Afghani Julio, government. Julio, how do we do that when in February of last year? No, serious serious question here. Not President Trump. No, I, I, you know, I, I, I get it, and I, and I think you can actually build a case for our having maintained a small presence in Afghanistan. But how do you yeah, do that when in February of last year, when Donald Trump was president? He ordered, actually it was, a, it was the year before that, he ordered the release of the guy who is, you know, who was the co-founder of the Taliban, uh, this, uh, you know, uh, Baradar, this uh, Mullah Baradar. He ordered his release from prison. He was being held in uh, Pakistan in prison. He ordered the release of 5,000 of the Taliban's top fighters. And then in February of last year, when he sat down in Doha to negotiate our, you know, the Trump surrender deal, he cut out the Afghan government. He said to the Ghani government, the elected government of, of Afghanistan, you may not participate in these conversations. To hell with you guys. I'm going to cut a surrender deal with the Taliban. I'm going to give them everything they want. And, and you know, and I'm going to keep my campaign promise of getting us out that's, of that's Afghanistan. A nice, uh, that's a nice revisionist history there. But, I mean, right now, true. the irresponsibility of the Biden administration trying to claim, finally claim a victory you know, in advance of 9-11, you know, they screwed the economy, they screwed up the border, they want to give the appearance. Joe Biden wants to have his mission accomplished moment. And right now, unfortunately, there's going to be hundreds, possibly thousands of people who are going to die. Trump cut out the Afghan place. government. But listen, you're talking about stuff. We're well past that point. Joe Biden. But, but you're saying, why didn't we collaborate Trump. with the Joe Afghan Biden government? I'm telling you why. Joe Biden owns it. You're trying to make this about Trump. You're doing the same thing Obama did for years with the blame Bush, the blame Bush. And this is well, the Bush hadn't lied us into this way. We wouldn't be having this conversation. Iraq pullout did because the same thing that Obama did, leaving them weapons, artillery that led to the rise of ISIS. We're going to have a resurgence of Al Qaeda because of the way that Joe Biden handled this. And you know who benefits, um, uh, Tom? And we could probably both agree on this. The military industrial complex stands to make a lot more money in this perpetual war because it will not end here. Because eventually, around the world, there's going to be these terrorist attacks that are going to lead to another Afghani war. 
Uh, Julio, I would I would submit to you. I, uh, Jeff Tiedrich tweeted this yesterday, and I'll just I'll just quote it because I think it's so eloquent. He said, "If you sat silently when Trump abandoned Syria and evacuated exactly zero of our Turkish of our Kurdish allies and handed over our military bases to Russia, kindly sit the f down and shut the f up and spare us your fake <laughs> outrage over Afghanistan." Biden has rescued over a hundred thousand. Listen, people. the Afghanistan issue, regardless of the state of Afghanistan. The one thing, and I was in the military myself, leave no man behind. And Joe Biden left thousands of civilian cooperators, Americans. You mean Donald Trump did? I'm telling this is, this is the biggest Donald thing Trump cut this, year, this deal a year and a half ago, Julio. Regardless of what the outcome was. I'm not an interventionist. I'm not into nation building. All these experiments go back. The biggest issue I have with Joe Biden that he should be ashamed of is the fact that he left behind Americans civilian cooperators and these he's gotten out 103,000 people how many people did Donald Trump get out after he signed that surrender agreement in February 2020 how many the, 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 the zero the, the, the zero program was he didn't do active. squat he played golf still active Tom it was still active all of this is occurring now all these problems that are happening right now we got Taiwan uh, under pressure from China because China's putting up China state media saying that America's not going to come to your rescue anymore. All these hot zones right now get hotter than ever because the perception globally is that America will leave behind their allies. A lot of this is just optics, Tom. It's horrible optics. Okay. I'll leave you with the last word, uh, Julio. Julio Rivera, uh, editorial director at ReactionaryTimes.com. On Twitter, oh yeah, Y-E-A-H, oh yeah, it's Julio. Hey, Julio, thank you for dropping by. It's good talking with you. Thank you as always, Tom. We'll be back. This is the Tom Hartman Program. So what do we do with this? How do we re-understand our history here? Kusai in Campo, California. Hey, Kusai, what's up? Yes. Good morning, Tom. Um, as macabre as this explosion is, it's really a gift to the Biden administration to say, we hold the Taliban 100% responsible for not securing the perimeter, outside perimeter of the airport, and therefore we're going to take matters into our own hand and do whatever we need to do to save our people. This was kind of a gift. They could do that. So, I, I'm guessing yes. that they won't, uh, you know, just, well, just because they're, yeah. I mean, They'd need another, you know, I think. I mean, I'm not a military guy, but I would think they would need another 10 or 20,000 troops to do that. You're talking about a city no, no, of millions of people. But I think, yeah, I understand. But just, you know, waving the bat is as dangerous as using the bat when mm -hmm. you're the biggest power in the world. Yeah. The second point I want to make is this is not 20 years ago. There's one invader that made it to Afghanistan that nobody's going to be able to come out, bring out. And that's the iPhone and the information. And mm. people know. And there's a difference. People didn't know nothing back then, but they know a lot now. Do you, do you uh, well, uh, for the moment, I mean, you know, the Afghan government does have the power to cut off the Internet there, don't they? I mean, uh, this is happening country they, after they, country. They do, they do but, but they do. But there's a lot of tribal independent operators. I mean, oh, these guys are not uh, holy. They're all crooks anyway. Even the Taliban that claim, claim to be, you know, supposedly good Muslim and so on, they're as as uh, crooked as the, the other guy. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. No, I so, get it. So I think it's an opportunity for us still, you know, to make something out of this, this catastrophe. It's, it's going to be real interesting to see how this plays out and, and whether... Uh, you know, I, I, I get it that, as we just heard with Julio, the, the, the Republicans are going to try to, you know, turn this into Joe Biden's problem. Um, it yeah, seems to me that when you've evacuated 103,000 people in, in about a month um, after Donald Trump planned for zero, nothing, none, zero. Yeah, I mean, yeah. literally had yeah. no plan whatsoever. Um, oh, absolutely. I know that, that we've done pretty good. Yeah. The one good thing, Tom, it's the one good thing and the one bad thing is that we, as a country, we have no memory. <laughs> yeah. You know, two months from now, three months from now. Well, we'll you would think that we, you know, I mean, George Bush, you know, went AWOL during Vietnam for a whole year. You would think that he would have learned at least the lesson of Vietnam. No, that wasn't the case. <laughs> obviously, you know, obviously. <laughs> and, that's, and that's the sad thing. So, so uh, you know, just where, where does this go? How, and, and how... How are the Republicans? I'm not. 
you know, I'm not hearing from Mitch McConnell. I haven't I haven't heard Ted Cruz come out and bloviate about this, but I'm but I'm guessing that they're going to. And I, I just wonder, you know, how how shameless these guys are going to be in trying to turn this into yeah, some. Go ahead. You, you, you know, the thing, though, Tom, is that when it comes to election and so on, it's all like a PNL statement. What have you done for me lately? You know, right. two, three months before the election, something else could happen and change the course of things. You That's look at true. our history throughout from the Civil War and even before that till now, at the last moment, something happened. You know, Bush had the Willie Horton thing before yeah. him. That's why uh, we have October you know, surprises. Absolutely, absolutely. Because yeah. in October, you can change an election in, in November. It's, it's like our memory doesn't go more than 60 days, it seems, you know, sadly. No, I think as a country, I think we all should be on red to be yeah. honest with you. I'm not sure we're unique in that regard, by the way. Uh, Kusai, thank no, you. No, we're not. We're yeah. not. Yeah. Thank, thank you. you Tom. Thank you. It's always nice to hear your thoughts on these issues. I want to tell you about uh, salvationist thinking and Cartesian thinking and how they're killing us. Stick around. Tom Harbin here with you. So my op-ed today is, and I will be picking up your phone calls here about what's going on in Afghanistan and where the blame is going to lay and how the Republicans are going to try and twist their way out of this and all this in just a moment. But I want to share this with you. Um, uh, taking a, a bit of a, tour, a turn into the philosophical, I think if we don't understand these deep, basically at the core of our culture, perspectives or worldviews or understandings or belief systems that inform how we understand the world. If we don't, if we don't take a critical view of these and even, I think, in a larger sense, have a conversation about them, they are going to control us. And the two that I see are probably more responsible than anything else for the destruction of our world, I suppose you could put the doctrine of discovery and white supremacy in this, in this pot, but, but for the moment, let me just focus on these two, um, which is salvationist thinking, which is, you know, very well represented in Christianity, but really is, you know, just pervades our culture with or without religion. Salvationist thinking, it comes out of our being children, right? That, that you know, somebody will save us, Daddy will save me. Mom, mom will make the pain, you know, make the, the skinned knee, the hurt go away. The doctor will fix things. Something will save us. That's salvationistic thinking. And then the other one is this Cartesian worldview. Rene Descartes basically argued uh, in a PC published in the 1600s, uh, 1637, in fact. It was called The Discourse on the Method for Rightly Directing One's Reason and Searching for Truth in the Sciences. And for a long time, for, for over 100 years, we referred to this as the Descartes method. Now it's referred to as the scientific method. But basically his idea was that the entire world is a giant machine. If you could just figure out where the levers are that you can pull, you can change how that machine works. And, you know, basically everything is inanimate. Now that actually does describe an awful lot of stuff. The majority of things that you can describe with science, you know, Rene Descartes was right about these things. But when you get to things like life that are so complex and so filled with inter, interrelated and interacting pieces that you can't just boil it down. I mean, you know, to a certain extent you can. Okay, we're going to remove your appendix because it's infected. We're going to give you an antibiotic because you've got a uh, an infection, something like that. Yeah, okay, but these are these are kind of rifle shots, not systemic things. But you know, the point that I uh, you know I made this in last hours of ancient sunlight. I've said it on the air before. I can take my car apart and spread the pieces all over my front yard, and if I'm very careful, uh, put it back together again, and it'll run just fine. I can't do the same thing with my dog. There is a difference between living things and non-living things, and so. Our salvationistic thinking with regard to climate change specifically was the focus of my thinking on this, although it applies to many other things. Our salvationist idea with climate change is something will save us. Don't worry, technology will fix all this. We will figure out how to decarbonize our atmosphere. 
So there's your salvationist thinking. And it's causing us not to take actions we need to be taking right now. And then, of course, this Cartesian worldview that, oh, it's all just a giant machine. If we can just figure out how to fix it, maybe if we just spray some some titanium dioxide in the upper atmosphere or put it in jet fuel so that those vapor trails will reflect the sunlight, that'll solve everything. Right. Well, it's not going to solve everything. We need to change the way we're living. We need to reduce our population. We need to get off fossil fuels. By the way, I am not unaware of the irony of saying we need to, as a predicate, arguing against Cartesian thinking and salvationist thinking. I get it. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Today's book in our book club is The Hidden History of the War on Voting, Who Stole Your Vote and How to Get It Back, by this guy, Tom Hartman. Uh, This is from Chapter 1, or from the introduction, actually. In 2016, 6% of Americans who were eligible to vote nominated Donald Trump as the GOP's presidential candidate. It was 8% for Hillary Clinton on the Democratic side. Trump went on to be elected president by 26% of eligible voters. The modern American oligarchs have largely stayed in power using three simple elements. Explicit overt racism, massive disinformation campaigns, and voter suppression. No ideas, no push for better schools, hospitals, airports, roads, or bridges, or reform of our health, energy, or financial systems. No promise of more and better jobs. None of these staples of past presidential campaigns can be found in pretty much any Republican advertising today. Instead, the public Republican message is all about race, or the subset of race, religion. Muslim stands in for brown Arab in GOP speak, and immigration, a.k.a. brown people from south of our border, and socialism. Meanwhile, Republican secretaries of state across the nation are vigorously purging voters from the rolls. Over 17 million, more than 10% of America's active voters, in just the 2016-2018 period, according to NBC News. After the five Republican appointees on the U.S. Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act in 2013, 14 GOP-controlled states moved within a year, some within days, to restrict access to the vote, particularly for communities of color, students, and retired people. In North Carolina, for example, 158 polling places were permanently closed in the 40 counties with the most African-American voters just before the 2016 election, leading to a 16% decline in African-American early voting in that state. An MIT study found that nationwide, Hispanic voters wait 150% longer in line than white voters, and black voters can expect to wait 200% longer in line to vote. In Indiana, then-Governor Mike Pence's new rigorous voter ID law caused an 11.5% drop in African-American voting. Students are suing for their right to vote, and retired people who no longer drive but care passionately about their Social Security and Medicare are being turned away at the polls by the hundreds of thousands because their driver's licenses have expired. The obvious failure of 40-plus years of Reaganomics and GOP policies to maintain a functional middle class in America 
has been a problem for the modern GOP. In 1974, for example, the GOP had outright control of only seven states. The message, elect us and we'll help the rich people, just didn't generally resonate with American voters. It's the reason why, outside of the fluke elections of 46 and 52, Democrats controlled the House of Representatives outright for three generations, from 1933 to 1996, and controlled the Senate for most of that time. Desperate to win the presidency for the GOP in 1968, Richard Nixon went so far as to commit treason by torpedoing a peace deal with President Lyndon Johnson that President Lyndon Johnson had worked out with the North and South Vietnamese. According to Abul Hassan Bani Sadr, then president of Iran, Ronald Reagan did the same thing by cutting a deal with Iran whereby they would hold on to the U.S. Embassy hostages until after the 1980 presidential election, torpedoing Jimmy Carter's chances of re-election. But in 2000, the GOP changed tactics. After Reagan was almost busted for his part in Iran-Contra, he testified that he had forgotten about details of the program more than 80 times his growing Alzheimer's spared him an indictment. They realized that getting busted for treason wasn't worth the risk. They needed a plan B. And it was deliciously simple. If most voters don't like what you're selling, then just don't let them vote. Paul Weyrich promoted this idea back in 1980 when he was campaigning for Reagan after co-founding the Heritage Foundation. And indeed, many Republican luminaries, such as William Rehnquist, who went from serving the GOP by standing in polling places and intimidating Hispanic and Native American voters in the 1960s to becoming Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, rose up through the ranks by participating in Republican-run voter intimidation schemes. Voter suppression became the foundational go-to tactic for the GOP in 2000. Although the GOP attacked Democratic presidential nominee Al Gore with smear and innuendo, ridiculing him for helping to write the legislation that created the modern Internet, for example. The main thing that got George W. Bush into the White House was voter suppression. His brother, Florida Governor Jeb Bush, and Bush's Secretary of State, Catherine Harris, threw somewhere between 20,000 and 90,000 African-American voters off the rolls. They were able to get the vote close enough that five Republican appointees to the Supreme Court functionally awarded Bush the presidency. The BBC covered this in 2001 in two major investigative reports that were seen all over the world, except on any American media. By 2016, the Republican Party had fine-tuned its voter suppression and intimidation systems to the point that they ran like well-oiled machines in nearly 30 states. Between the 2012 and 2016 presidential elections, for example, Ohio had purged more than 2 million voters from its rolls, the vast majority, more than 2 to 1, in heavily African-American and Hispanic counties. The five Republican appointees on the Supreme Court ruled in 2017 that they could keep it up. And other states have since adopted their new tactic of caging voters. The book, The Hidden History of the War on Voting, by me. The Supreme Court is up to no good. In fact, the uh, headline over at uh, Alternet, as I recall, is uh, the Supreme Court launches a political torpedo right at the Biden administration. Well, it turns out it's not just the Supreme Court. Uh, this, you know, we, we watched for, what, four years while Mitch McConnell did nothing but pack the federal courts with right-wing crazies coming out of the Federalist Society. And uh, here we are. On the line with us is our old buddy Greg Pallas, the investigative journalist, the author of uh, his most recent book, How Trump Stole 2020. GregPallas.com is his website. Uh, he's got a great newsletter. You need to subscribe to it there, and, uh, and it's free. And also his Twitter handle is at Greg underscore Pallas, P-A-L-A-S-T. Greg, welcome back. Tell us about this. Well, in Colorado, you have a uh, berserko judge, in other words, appointed by Trump. Uh, agree with Judicial Watch, the right-wing um, vote suppression hit squad of lawyers, uh, using the National Voter Registration Act, which is supposed to protect voters, right? That's how the, why the law was passed. And they're using the NVRA to, um, to sue the state of Colorado, and the judge went along with this so far, so giving them a trial, which will allow them to claim that they have to start purging the voter rolls of of Colorado. Now, we've been through this purge game for a very long time. 
You know, I've been studying it since, uh, investigating since Catherine Harris purged black people back in 2000, 58,000 black men, and that elected George Bush. And, well, it's rolled on and gotten more sophisticated, and they've taken it now to Colorado. And the judge says, yeah, you can, uh, we can have a trial to force the state to start purging the voter rolls. It's a complete phony. I mean, they're evidence, and I can tell you, you know, I used to teach statistics, among the other crazy things I've done, and uh, their so-called statistics are that, ooh, there are thousands of people on the voter rolls who are inactive and dead, and uh, they've moved away. Well, you know, you have these giant voters. Well, yeah, so what? But you haven't seen zombies walking into Colorado voter booths. We haven't seen Canadians marching in on their mooses. Uh, we haven't seen people voting from prisons. But um, so there's no evidence, absolutely zero, none of a single, not even one. They couldn't produce a single fraudulent vote. But they're saying, well, could be, and the judge is going along with it. Very, very is dangerous this, stuff. Is this, I mean, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Greg, but Colorado has a Democratic governor and a Democratic secretary of state. How, how is this happening? Because <laughs> you have a Trump, you have a Trump judge, so that's why he's. That's why they're suing because and they're he's trying letting to the legislature seat. do this. I mean, who's? Well, who's... no, he, no. They're, uh, what he's saying is that the secretary. They're suing to force the Democratic Secretary of State uh, Griswold right. to begin purging the voter rolls of Colorado. Now they're very sharp at this judicial watch. They've done this successfully, by the way, in Pennsylvania, the key swing state. And what they're trying to do is force the state to join a program called ERIC, uh, which is, uh, we've investigated ERIC for the, uh, when I say we, the Palace investigative team and experts have gone through the ERIC list in the state of Wisconsin for Black Voters Matter. We found that about a third of the list is made up completely, completely of students and black people who are legal voters but they're on this hit list as movers. And you move your dorm room from one building to another, and they say, oh, you're a ghost voter or you've left the state. This is what they're trying to do. They did it in Pennsylvania. That's why Pennsylvania was close, because they removed a lot of people who should not have been removed. Georgia's just adopted this system. Florida's just adopted this system. Pennsylvania's adopted this system. And now they want to force through a Trump judge. So is Eric the new interstate cross-check, or only it's yeah. state-specific? It's just being done state by state rather than some sort of national list that, that Chris uh, uh, Kansas Kobach came up with? <laughs> uh, well, this is this is son of, of uh, interstate cross-check. You know, our campaign really defeated interstate cross-check. It's dead, it's done. Mm -hmm. and uh, But, the, you know, out of the crypt came this new son of cross-check, Eric, which they're trying to impose on Colorado. Now, again, you have a legislature and a Senate, uh, you have a Democratic governor, Democratic Secretary of State, who are saying, we're not going along with this nonsense, but you have a court misusing a voter protection law to remove protections from... Right, that, that law in 1993 is sometimes referred to as the Motor Voter Act. That was the one That's that, right. you know, that, that uh, required states to allow people to register to vote when they get the driver's license. It also is the only law in, on the books that in its both in its preamble and in the black letter law of you know black letter part of the law itself says that all american citizens have a right to vote i mean that that literally that language is in there and for some yeah. reason the supreme court and that was 1993 as i recall and for some That's reason correct. the supreme court completely ignored that in the bush v gore decision when they ruled that if the florida recount was actually conducted it would cause irreparable harm to plaintiff george w bush well, yeah, it would have if you let, if you counted all the votes in Florida, it would have irreparably non-president uh, Bush. Right. So uh, yes, so what they're doing is you're correct. The 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 law, which is, seems to be erased in a Norwellian manner by this federal judge, a law that's supposed to protect voters, is being used to force the purging of voters. And I have to tell you, because I have the law virtually memorized, that the law specifically says you do not have to purge voters from the voter rolls. It says that the voter rolls must be accurate. Now, it, and that doesn't mean that you start removing students and African Americans and in Colorado Hispanics. Look, the last time that there was a Colorado Republican as Secretary of State, they removed 50,000 people uh, who were uh, ex-cons. They said, well, you know, we're going to remove all the ex-cons from the voter rolls. But guess what? Colorado doesn't have any law which removes, which prohibits ex-cons from voting. But oh, they removed 50,000 people. Oh, geez. So this is the game that they're playing. 
So it's, uh, you know, uh, the, the apocryphal statement from Joe Stalin, and I, I've never been able to find an actual source of him saying it, it, this. Oh, I know what you're going to say, and it, he really said it. Okay. <laughs> who counts the votes? Yeah. Is, he it, really uh, it. I don't care who votes. What, I ma- what, what matters to me is who counts the votes. And, That's correct. And, and in this case, it's I don't care who registers to vote or tries to vote. I just care who's on the legal voting roll because I can give provisional ballots to people who aren't on those rolls. They all think that they voted. Their vote will never get counted, and we get to win elections. That's right. So they, it's, the again, the abuse of laws that were meant to protect voters, like we were mentioning, for example, the provisional ballots, of which there were about 2.7 million in the last election or a little less, and most were about a million were not counted, mostly cast by African Americans. Those the provisional ballot was created to protect voters who were re- wrongly removed from the from the rolls. Instead, it's been used as a as a basically a dumpster. When black voters come in, young, especially young black males uh, from the statistics and Asian American young males, yeah. are handed provisional ballots and then they don't get counted on all kinds of cockamamie grounds. So it's an abuse of the language of voting rights bills. I'm very concerned, by the way. I'm going to be very honest with you, Tom, and a lot of people won't like to hear this, but there's a lot of dangers in the For the People Act. Uh, John Lewis Act would, would stop this judicial watch hit job on Colorado in its tracks. The John Lewis law would restore the Voting Rights Act and allow the Justice Department to say, come on, you can't get away with this. We have to pre-clear it, and that means that we well, have to it, and, this and it's looking increasingly it. like if one of those two pieces of legislation is going to pass, it's not going to be the For the People Act. There's just, you know, Manchin and Cinema have dug their, their heels in. It would probably be that John Lewis Voting Rights Act. Well, I hope we get the Lewis Act, because what it does is it restores the Voting Rights Act and puts some real juice into it. That's where, our, uh, where we should be uh, putting our efforts into the John Lewis Act. It would stop this case in its tracks, assuming that, uh, that our Attorney General will be doing his job. I know that we've got a terrific new um, Civil Rights Division at the Justice Department, yes. which, you know, until, until a year ago was the Injustice Department. It's not all bad news, though. I should mention that we just won a big case in uh, North Carolina for voting rights, in which the court there said that you cannot require ex-cons to pay a bunch of fines and court costs that you can't even know what they are right. uh, in order to vote. So that was the wee bad. I don't want to say it's all grim. Let's not go there. Yeah. Yeah, although you know, they, they have stacked the courts so so thoroughly that they're doing their very best. You can read all about it at gregpalace.com, and uh, you can discuss it online with Greg at greg underscore palace on Twitter. Greg, it is always great talking with you. Keep up the great work and, and the, the extraordinary work that the Palace Investigative Fund is doing um, is so worth you know people's support. Thank you for dropping by. You're the best, Tom. Thanks. Back at you, Greg. Always great talking with you. Women's Equality Day. Uh, We need to be electing more progressive women. We need economic, political, social equality for women in our society. It's uh, yeah, I, regular listeners to this program know for years and years I've been singing this song about if you want to get population under control, um, establish economic, political, educational e- e- uh, equality for women, and that will happen very quickly. But that's just like one little piece of a whole spectrum of things. Lala Wu is on the line with us, the co-founder and executive director of Sister District. Lala is a former environmental and clean energy lawyer now working on this issue. Sisterdistrict.com is the website, and also Sister underscore District is the Twitter handle. Uh, and Lala's uh, uh, personal Twitter handle is underscore Lala, L A L A underscore Wu, W U underscore. Um, and uh, Lala, welcome back to the program. And, uh, tell us about Women's Equality Day uh, tomorrow and uh, what, in your opinion, are some of the positive stories that we really need to be hearing and focusing on and helping us to forget, you know, the insanity of the Trump years and the, and the, and the, and the COVID <laughs> and everything else. Well, Tom, it's great to be here again. Thank you for having me on. 
We are very, very excited to be celebrating Women's Equality Day. This marks the centennial of the 19th Amendment, which, of course, prohibits discrimination based on sex for voting. It's really amazing to think that the day marks 100 years since this amendment was ratified by two-thirds of the states in this country. And I think it's really a time for us to reflect on how much has been accomplished and to honor and to celebrate the courage of the many suffragettes and the many women who came before us who fought for equal rights. You know, that context in the 19th century was that women had very, very few rights um, as compared to what we have today. Women could not, for example, inherit property. They only made half of what men's uh, pay was. And now we've had some major legal and cultural and other shifts. But as you and your listeners likely know, there is still a lot of work to be done. And a lot of work actually is being done. And, you know, I mean, New York just got a, a, a woman as a governor, although, the, you know, by virtue of a man once again screwing things up. You know, I think about the Iroquois Confederacy and how four out of five of the Iroquois nations at first contact with Europeans, the only people who were allowed to essentially vote in those communities were women, you know, the elders. elders. How, much, how much different our society, and I say this as a man, uh, how different are different in a positive way our society would be. Um, uh, an old friend of mine, a, a professor of psychiatry at Harvard University, we were having lunch one day, and we were talking about drug abuse. Uh, we had been giving lectures that day on attention deficit disorder, and he said, "You know what the most dangerous drug in the world is?" And I was like, "What?" And expecting him to say, "You know, cocaine or something." And he says testosterone. He says it's responsible for most of the wars. And, you know, he just goes on in this rant, you know, this professor, Harvard professor of psychiatry. And, and I think he's right. And so tell us what sisterdistrict.com is doing, you know, to, to help bring about at least more equality in our society. Absolutely. So Sister District builds progressive power in state legislatures, and we do support both men and women and trans and all other kinds of candidates, everyone out there who uh, fits into our democratic values that we want to see. And we represent and we support so many women and women of color in particular because we understand the importance of representation, because we understand that this world will, as you suggest, be a better place if we've got more than just, you know, straight, cis, white men in office. Um, and so this way we are looking to build a reflective democracy that really represents the broader populace, has all the voices so that we can make advancements on issues, not just your typical women's issues, you know, which are important, of course, reproductive justice and childcare, for example. These are vitally, vitally important issues that are usually thought of as quote-unquote women's issues, but on all kinds of issues on infrastructure, which, by the way, I think childcare fits into that definition, you know, on labor, on the environment, on all of these other issues, we really, really need all kinds of voices, including women's voices uh, at all levels of government. You know, we, I, I think the average person is familiar with structural impediments, for example, racial justice. You know, I think redlining, for example, is widely understood nowadays. Um, and, and I remember back in the early 1970s, uh, Louise and I were married in 71, and I think it was 72 or 73 was the first year that a woman could get a credit card without her husband's permission and signature. It, it were a very strange time. I mean, it was a very different time for women. What are the, but, but that was then, this is now, what are the structural impediments to women having economic and political power that, you know, perhaps most people are unaware of or that everybody is aware of that, that really need to be, you know, that we need to go after. I know, for example, the Equal Rights Amendment still hasn't been, but are there specifics here that we should be focusing on and talking about? 
Yes, absolutely. But it doesn't mean that we can't slide backwards. You know, a handmaid's tale is not necessarily uh, such science fiction, and we need to always be vigilant and to to understand that it's not necessarily a straight line. So with that in mind, yes, there's so many different structural barriers and, you know, volumes have been written. But I think a few important layers to point out are, you know, there are uh, legal um, barriers, as you mentioned, for example, the Equal Rights Amendment uh, has still not been passed. Um, there are cultural barriers. You know, there are uh, these persistent ideas that women are not fit to lead or to have positions outside of the household. You mentioned that Kathy Hochul became Governor Kathy Hochul um, in New York and the first women governor in that state. Uh, but it's important to remember that she She's the 45th women governor in the course of the history of the United States, and that uh, that it, as compared to a thousand uh, male governors that have served, um, and then thinking also about how of that of those 45 women governors in our entire country's history, 12 of them have come to power uh, not through election, but because there was some kind of scandal or because the governor who was outgoing could no longer serve. And it seems to be that no matter what kind of progress we're kind of making, and Barbara Rodriguez at the 19th wrote a nice piece about this recently, that uh, there still is this sort of um, mental block, a failure of imagination to see women in certain kind of apex positions of power. So that's why representation is so important. Uh, you know, I, it's my hope that positions like Hochul's, they can kind of wedge the door open, help people see more broadly what the possibilities are when women are in office, when women are in power and what they can do. This exists, you know, in corporate settings as well. Um, This matters for voters, how we think about who votes, who we target, who we turn out. Um, It really permeates all aspects of our society. And I will say one more time, just because it is such a hot button issue right now, that Childcare is infrastructure. If we don't have ways to, um, you know, support families with children, then it's going to be very, very hard to make sure that all the adults in that family have the opportunity to work if they want to. And this is a huge, huge issue. Yeah, we need to be thinking of pre-K the same way we think of public schools. Um, you know, it's, it's and, and it is part of our infrastructure. We're talking with Lala Wu, the co-founder and executive director of Sister District. Sisterdistrict.com is the website. Tell us about the organization and what people can do who want to support the work that you're doing. Absolutely. Go to sisterdistrict.com, sign up, you'll get connected with your local team. All kinds of volunteer um, and actions that you can take right now that are really concrete in races that really matter to increase representation of women and others to build that democracy that we want to see. If you're feeling like you don't know what you want to do, this is, this is the way to do it. So this, please check it out. This is an entry point into activism. Sisterdistrict.com. Lala Wu, the co-founder and executive director. Thank you, Lala. Great talking with you. You too. Thanks so much, Tom. And sister underscore district over on Twitter if you want to check that out as well. We'll be back. See, there's a lot of good things you can do. There's a, <laughs> there is optimism. We'll be back. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Speaking the truth to multinational corporations who'd really rather they didn't know about. I'll be back with your calls on the other side of this. More of the news today. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. 
Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Our book today is The Women's Suffrage Movement, edited by Sally Roche-Wagner. It is a, a collection of of essays by a whole variety of people from Gloria Steinem to, you know, onward. This is from the foreword. With the women's suffrage movement, Sally Roche Wagner has given us a unique gift. The real words, words and actions, writings and debates of white and black women who fought for over a century to gain an identity as free human beings and citizens. For most of those years, black women were legally owned as chattel, forced to work and to suffer the unique punishment of giving birth to children who were also enslaved. White women were not as restricted and endangered as African women or men, but as the daughters and wives of white men, they were also legal chattel with no right to leave their homes, disobey orders, profit from their own work, speak in public, have custody of their own children, own property without a guardian, or affect the patriarchal laws that governed their lives. Even many white men who fought against slavery supported the subordinate position of their wives and daughters. When Susan B. Anthony, an abolitionist and a suffragist, sheltered not only runaway slaves, but white wives escaping violent husbands, male abolitionist allies warned her that she was going too far. As Frederick Douglass, a freed slave abolitionist and suffragist himself, wrote in his autobiography, when the true history of the anti-slavery cause shall be written, women will occupy a large space in its pages, for the cause of the slave has been peculiarly women's cause. And this despite the fact that many white women, especially not only in the South, aided and abetted black slavery and accepted their own subordinate position as natural. A, a century later, Gunnar Myrdal would explain in his landmark study of slavery that enslaved African women and men brought to these shores had been given the legal status of wives as the nearest and most natural analogy to the status of slaves. As he added, the quote, the parallel between women and Negroes is the deepest truth of American life, for together they form the unpaid or underpaid labor on which America runs, end quote. Wagner takes us into the rooms, writings, and discussions where white and black women and black men, all fighting for legal personhood and full citizenship, were both a miracle of shared purpose, despite all the le lethal forces keeping them apart, and a tragedy of division that echoes in the need for intersectionality and inclusion in this day. Even the lynching of black men, crimes designed to maintain the racial order after the Civil War, was most often justified by proximity to white women, however imaginary or freely chosen. This tells us how dangerous and brave was the co Coalition for Universal Adult Suffrage that you will read about here. It also reveals the betrayal when white men split the coalition apart by offering the vote to black men first, only to then limit their votes with poll taxes, impossible literacy tests, and violence. Yet despite this tragic division, and despite being labeled as varying degrees of non-human, this fractious rebellion and fragile coalition did eventually succeed in gaining citizenship for the majority of people in this country. Wagner brings us these imperfect and hopeful rebellions of the past as they happened, complete with divisions and debates and a long organizational disagreement among suffragists about whether to seek the vote by federal amendment or state by state. She doesn't attempt to pr prove a thesis or to explain mistakes or to excuse destructive divisions. Other than the first and last chapters, each one with a very specific purpose, she doesn't insert herself at all. Instead, she allows us to witness the words and acts, dreams and disappointments, victories and defeats, visionary ideas and tactical errors of people fighting a battle that laid the basis for our continuing movement against hierarchies based on race and gender. It is this faithfulness to the past that allows us to learn lessons for changes in the present. In 30 years or so, this will no longer be a majority white country. It will better reflect the diversity that has always been its strength and its promise. Indeed, the first generation that is majority babies of color has already been born, and public opinion polls already show that the majority of Americans no longer support divisions by race or by gender. Yet there is also a lethal backlash from about a third of the country, including over half of white married women, among the often those without a college education, who want to preserve their unearned place in the social and economic hierarchy. That's why these victories and defeats of the past become the best possible lessons and warnings for our present and future. By taking us into the rooms where history happened, Wagner allows us to see the parallels and difference 
differences, empathy and estrangements, connections and isolations that can hinder or help our goals now. Almost none of the people we will meet in these pages will live to celebrate the changes they are working for. This should tell us that social justice movements are not a temporary part of our lives. They are our lives. Most of the activists here were not sure that slavery would be abolished or that universal adult suffrage would ever succeed. This should give us humility about what we can predict and also arm us with faith and patience. Few guessed that the legal right to vote would come a half century later for white and black women than for black men, but would be mostly on paper. In the South, where most black Americans live, it would take another century plus an entire civil rights movement to overcome procedural and sometimes lethal barriers to voting. This should make us skeptical about changes that come from the top and that divide us more than empower us. And there are other lessons, and it continues. The Women's Suffrage Movement, its collection of essays edited by Sally Roche Wagner. Welcome back. 51 minutes past the hour. It looks like a number of U.S. service members have died in this uh, apparent suicide bombing in Kabul. The word is still coming out. It shouldn't surprise us. Actually, it, it, it is surprising that it hasn't happened before now. But that said, it's uh, still another tragedy, another, another collection of, of lives lost that we could lay at the feet of George W. Bush for lying us into a war in Afghanistan after the government, the Taliban government of Afghanistan in 2001 offered to arrest bin Laden and turn him over for prosecution. And George W. Bush, you know, he had already declared even before the election that his way of getting reelected in 2004 was going to be by being commander in chief, a war president. He said, you've got to be seen as a commander in chief. This is just so, so, uh, so sad, so unfortunate. Marianne in Phoenix. Hey, Marianne, what's on your mind today? Uh, I guess I just really wanted to back up a lot of the callers, uh, especially related to Julio. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he mentioned that we're not nation builders, which is I, one thing I agree with him. I don't know if he really believes that. But you can't change a culture. And we were there for 20 years and created a military and a government. And as soon as we left, they felt. And so I wonder how much they really did uh, appreciate American help, how much they really uh, were uh, in in concert with us. I wonder if maybe down deep in their minds they waited for us to leave. I think that's probably true of the men. I think many of the women Mm -hmm. very much appreciated the idea that women should have equal status or, or something close to it with men yeah um but yeah. And, and i think that yeah. you know people are always making this analogy with vietnam um vietnam actually south vietnam did not fall until two years after we left which is something that most people miss they think that it fell the day that we pulled out that was just the day that we pulled out when jerry ford had that last helicopter leave it took another when two years yeah and everyone was panicking then and it was chaos right um right. But, yeah. I, but I think but, this is going to take right. a couple of years, too, to shake out. Right. And from everything I've read, uh, Kabul was basically like an island in the middle of, the, of Afghanistan where we had control until we left, until, you know, till now. Yeah. And the rest of the outlying territories, et cetera, were held by uh, Taliban and tribal leaders. And, and likely, as you're mentioning, mostly men. Uh, and and the men don't want change, yeah. you know. Uh, it's sort of uh, the haves want to keep what they have, and and in Afghanistan, that's the men, and so that's a cultural thing that you know. Obviously, it has to change over time, and maybe these twenty years added some impetus to people wanting to change it after we leave um, in a different way. But that's going to be civil war, likely. So I yeah. just wanted to mention that 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 you know we didn't win the hearts and minds of the men anyway as far as I can see it, in 20 years. I think you're you right. Know? I think you're absolutely right. All right. On the other hand, it's, you can't take away literacy from people once they have it. And, right. Um, you know. And that might be a motivating force for things to change there uh, that, we've, that we are leaving behind. Let's a motivating so. kind of thing. 
Let's yeah. hope so. Marianne, thank you. Yeah, thank thank you, you for a very thoughtful commentary. I appreciate it. Jesse in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Hey, Jesse, what's up? You wanted to get back to Cartesian thinking? Yeah, Tom. Hi. Thank you for taking my call. Um, and I appreciate uh, you and, and the opening. And the, it got me thinking on Cartesian thinking. Uh, thinking yeah. And I'm, I'm wondering what you think the implications of Cartesian thinking is as a society on our capacity for or to have an embodied connection to our planet and the subsequent crisis that we're in and other I think it disconnects us from life. Yeah. I mean when we view everything alive as just a giant machine then we're not we're not acknowledging this extraordinary mystery um, you know, the, the, the magic, the fire of life that is in everything, and I would say in the entire universe, but, you know, I'm, I'm limiting my rant to the planet. And then when we overlay that with this salvationist idea that something external to us, whether it's some genius with a new invention or whether it's some, you know, uh, return of a, of, a, of a prophet or a god, is going to save us from our own folly and our own mistakes, uh, the, the two together are poison. And they are the dominant forces in our society. Yeah. And I was thinking about, you know, the so Cartesian thinking, Cartesian dualism as that mind-body mm -hmm. split, and so as a precursor for maybe some sort of collective dissociation then if we're split like that. And Oh, Carl Jung uh, wrote about that. Yeah. Anyway, it just made me think about, I think you made a comment, too, in your opening about, you know, our... Um, yeah. And, and for that matter, by the way, Sigmund Freud wrote about it. One of my favorite books of Sigmund Freud's is Civilization and Its Discontents, where, you know, he's he's, right. he's kind of laying this out. I mean, it's just, he's not using the language that I'm using to describe it, but I would argue that it's essentially the same thing, that there are these deeply dysfunctional stories that we tell ourselves that are built into our culture that have their own reason for being there and for continuing, but over the long term, they're, they're essentially destructive, the discontents of our civilization. Jesse, thank you. Thank you for uh, another thoughtful call. I appreciate it. Well, we're hitting the top of the hour. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.